I'm going to be reading today from Luke 3, verses 1 through 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the, for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall, shall see the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jonathan. It is a blessing to be with you all this day. Merry Christmas. We can, we can still say that one day after Christmas, right? Merry Christmas. As we close this Advent season and look forward into the next year, it's helpful to set expectations. Christmas is a season of expectations, is it not? Maybe you remember as you were younger, or maybe this is still you, expecting to get a certain gift, hoping, looking at that one present, thinking, that could be it. That could be what I'm wanting. As you grow older, you hope for, you expect a certain experience around Christmas. That joy, that family, everyone around the tree or around the dinner table that evening, hopefully that wasn't ruined by the child that didn't get what they were expecting. You know, I've been in a few of those dinners. I've been that child. It happens. Uh, if you've been here at Trinity for the past few weeks, or if you've grown up in and around the church, you know that Christmas, the Advent season, is a time of expectation, expecting the coming of the King, the birth of Jesus the Messiah. It's a season of expectations. Uh, even as we begin to look forward into the next year, we have expectations for next year. I expect to get that promotion. I expect my husband to go back to the gym and just get jacked. Ishani, maybe when school is done. We'll see. We are a people who live riding the waves of expectations. And yet there are treacherous obstacles in the way of those expectations. There are things that stand between us and what we want, what we're hoping for and looking for. There are valleys which need to be filled in, mountains which need to be leveled, corruptions, evil, what we call sin everywhere that needs to be conquered, that needs to be triumphed over. And in this season, Together as a church family, we've been looking at the different prayers, the different songs that the book of Luke gives to us as we approach this Christmas morning, and we're going to look at one more song together, an ancient song, uh, the song of Isaiah. It's a royal song. It's a prophetic song, one that takes place 700 years before the book of Luke is written. A song that the people of Israel, to whom Luke has written, they've been singing this song 
over and over. And this song is brought to our attention now in the book of Luke because it's time for the song, the prophecy, to be fulfilled. We sing together all the time, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. The king is arriving. And friends, as we begin to look at this passage, I hope uh, that, that I can suggest to you maybe it's time uh, for our expectations to be altered a little bit, for our expectations to be reoriented. As we look at this passage, if there's one thing I hope to imprint upon your hearts, one thing to remember, it's this. Your expectations, they will ultimately be met as you look to Christ as the king. Let me say that again. Your expectations will ultimately be met as you look to Christ as the king. Uh, the intention when I say that is not to give you some get-rich-quick scheme type of, you know, if, if you just do this, you'll get everything you want. That's not what I'm saying. But rather that as you begin to understand what this song is going to teach us, as you begin to see Christ as the king who is coming to us, our expectations They'll be shifted. They'll be conformed to what is good, what is true, what is peaceful, what is joy for you and me. And we're going to explore that idea by looking at two points this morning briefly. First, the occasion of the arrival. What is the occasion of the arrival of the king? And second, what is the purpose of the arrival? What's the purpose of this king? Why does he come? Let's step into that first point together, the occasion of the arrival. With any occasion, with any event, there are certain questions that you have as you approach it. And the first is, who's going to be there? When you get the Evite, how quick are you to pop open the email and see, who is this sent to? Who is RSVP'd yes? And you never let that affect, if you're going to say yes or no, of course not. That would be incredibly rude. I've never done that. But you want to know who's going to be there. And Luke, as he opens this passage, uh, tells us who's here for the arrival of the king. Who shows up? And the first verse of Luke 3, it's it's the kind of verse that you tend to skip over. Names that don't mean much to me. Places that don't mean anything to me. Times that are irrelevant to me. But we should know that the people who would have heard this for the first time, these names are significant to them. It's good for us not to just skip over them like they're meaningless. These names like Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, uh, during the priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, these would be significant to the people who read them. Much the same way, imagine if you open a document and it begins saying, during the presidency of Joe Biden or Donald Trump, during the Senate majority leadership of Chuck Schumer or Mitch McConnell, often those kinds of names of leaders, maybe people who you don't like, uh, they evoke a certain reaction, don't they? Uh, During the tyrannical reign of Vice Principal Mr. Phillips, who, I'm not kidding, had wolves hanging on the walls of his office to scare you as you showed up because you're in trouble. Uh, When you hear the name of a powerful opponent, it affects you, doesn't it? 
It puts you in a certain frame of mind. And in this context, these names, they're not even elected leaders. No, these are tyrants. These are the types of people who conquered your home, who rule over you ruthlessly. Powerful names evoke a certain reaction, especially when they're the names we don't want to hear. Those are the people who Luke says are here at the coming of Christ. In the midst of these powers and evils, Christ is coming. But there's a second type of person who's here. The lowly, the good. In the face of this, Luke brings to us another character, John the Baptist. John is quite the opposite of these tyrants, of these kings. John uh, doesn't live in a palace. No, he lives in the wilderness. He is humble. He is meek. He's lowly. Of his goodness, we know uh, the Bible declares he is the second best person to ever live under Jesus. Could you imagine getting that title? If Man, it was Jesus and then me and then all the rest of you. That's how good this guy was. No one's going to say that about Chris Calvi. I know that for sure. Amen. And, and Luke, what he tells us is that in the midst of these people, the word of God, verse 2, the word of God comes to this John in the wilderness. When God chooses to send a king, who does he use to pave the way? He uses the lowly, the meek, the oppressed. Those are the people here at this occasion, at this event. Now, what kind of event is this? What kind of occasion is this? Well, Luke uses this picture, this song, this song from 700 years in the past, from the book of Isaiah. This song of Isaiah, let me read it for us again in verse 4. He says, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight, the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The imagery of this song, it draws upon, it evokes royal road building. And the idea of royal roads as they were constructed in ancient times. When a king is coming to visit your town, you build roads for him. When a king is coming to visit, what does he do? He sends out first his heralds and then his engineers. And the heralds come to the town and they say, the king is coming, get ready. He's coming, he's on his way. And then the engineers work together with the townspeople to construct a road. When someone important is coming, you do get ready, right? You prepare the way. And so they begin to construct a road. They begin to level out the land. No one wants the king to show up and to have mud all over his feet as he arrives. And when you're building a good road, how do you build it? You make it straight. Nobody wants to veer off. Uh, you fill in the potholes, the valleys. You bulldoze the inclines, the mountains. When the king is coming, like this kind of occasion, you prepare the way. And to hear this too, this promise of John the Baptist, bringing this kind of occasion, it's a beautiful thing. 
It's good not just for the king for roads to be built. No, it's good for you and for me. It's good for the townspeople who are hearing it. They benefit when the valleys are being filled in. When the mountains raised up against them, oppressing them, are crushed. When the powers that are abusing them are overthrown. This is good for the people. We're talking about a joyful, restorative announcement and arrival. Uh, The people of Israel here, they've been waiting 700 years for this, singing this song, hoping that a new king would come to rescue them. And is justice, is love, is peace on earth, goodwill to men, is that what's coming? That's what we're expecting. Are those expectations going to be met? Is Christ the king who's going to bring that? Why does he come? Let's step into that second point. Why does Christ come? What is the purpose of this arrival? Well, why do kings usually come? Kings have so many duties. They sit on their throne over the people, and from on high, when the good king comes, there are certain things he should do. Uh, Good kings, when they arrive, they declare new laws. Uh, They give restoration. They give resources to what's been torn down. Uh, They promote and affirm the good. They condemn. They judge the evil and the wicked. Uh, We hope good kings come and do that. And as the good king does this, if you have a king who's good and he does these kinds of things, affirms the good, restores what's broken, condemns, judges what's wicked, overthrows them, we're grateful for this kind of king. Wouldn't we love to have those kinds of leaders among us? People love this king. This is good news. Go tell this on the mountain. Well, why does this king come? If Jesus is a good king who's coming, we expect him to do this, right? To bring down the wicked, to lift up the oppressed. Those are our expectations, that he is good to us in this way. And yet there's a problem. There's a problem the text brings to light. What actually paves the road for this coming king in this passage? There's a mission that John the Baptist is on. Before we read the song, there's, there's something John the Baptist is doing in verse 3. It says, he went into all the regions around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See, the problem for us and for the people hearing this as the king is coming is that you and I and the people who John is preaching to We're not the good kind of people who are supposed to be lifted up. We're not the loyal subjects who deserve to be exalted by the king. Much to the contrary, we are sinners. We're those who have broken the king's law. Uh, On our own, we're not the kind of people who live respecting him, loving the king, obeying him, looking to him. We aren't those kinds of people. That plays out in how we treat each other, does it not? That there are so many people who I know that lying is wrong, and yet I've deceived them day after day. 
Uh, there's people around me who every time I see them or I hear their name, I swell up with anger and frustration and bitterness because of something that they've done and I just can't forgive them. How many people in my life are like that and I treat them this way? When I know that I'm called to forgive, I, instead I have hate in my heart. Those are not the kind of people that the king affirms. No, we don't deserve that. We deserve judgment. We deserve the condemnation that comes when a king arrives. And that's why John proclaims a message, a baptism of repentance. Of repentance. What does that mean? It means turning away from these things this evil. It means seeking out forgiveness. It means when the king shows up, get on your knees and beg for forgiveness. Beg for mercy. Now, what's your impulse? What's your response as you hear that? Man, it, I mean, yes, some people deserve judgment, but, but me, really? Is, is that what I'm supposed to expect? Uh, God, your expectations seem a little high, Uh, Am I really that kind of person? I wasn't expecting this, God. I wasn't expecting you to show up and to judge me. Uh, God, can we revise this idea? Can Can we negotiate here a little bit? How quick are we to think that way? And yet, what does that kind of impulse, that kind of response, that kind of attempt to amend the rules demonstrate? Who do we really view as king in that moment? Friends, relationships with kings don't work in a way that you get to make up the rules. That's not how these relationships operate. As soon as you begin to say, let me amend it, let me change it, let me, let's conform this to what I think should be so that I meet the good qualifications, and I'm subverting his rule. That is treasonous. That is rebellious. The king is the one who rules He is the one who has authority. Our attempts to amend that, to subvert that, it's treasonous. It just shows on the surface, yeah, we don't respect him. We aren't the kind of people who want to obey him. We deserve the judgment that comes. Now, friends, here is what subverts all expectations. When this king comes... When Jesus comes, the beauty of the gospel revealed to us is that this king is no ordinary king. When this king comes, when Christ the Messiah is born, what does verse 6 say? All flesh shall see the salvation of God. What is his purpose in coming? It's salvation. Back when this song would have first been read, if you look back in Isaiah 40, this line looks a little different. In Isaiah 45, it says, all flesh shall see the glory of the Lord. What was the expectation? The Lord is going to come and show his glory, his might, his power, his authority. And Luke, as he interprets that verse, what does he say that glory looks like for us? Here, it's his salvation. His power, his glory, it's not shown in judgment to us. It's not shown in the condemnation that we deserve. No, it's shown 
in salvation. The king's purpose is to save us. What does that mean for this king? It means when he shows up, he doesn't arrive on perfectly paved roads. It means when he arrives, he doesn't live the lofty life of a king. No, when our king comes, he comes humbly, born in a manger. It means he labors and he suffers doing the poor man's job in the shop and the field. It means he suffers. The king suffers facing the oppression, the loneliness, the fears, the loss that each of us encounter. It means in the end, the king is murdered, sacrificed, crucified on a cross for us. Luke 23, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, says there's an inscription over him, the king of the Jews. Man, the king doesn't come to judge the wicked here. This king has come to save them. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, in another song, he says it like this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds, we are healed. That is the king who comes. Nobody expects a king to come and suffer for his people. To die to pay the judgment that they deserve to take that upon himself. And yet that is why our king comes. Friends, the king comes Christmas Day to save us. Oh, that is so good for us. That is so needed. And so what do we do? How do we respond? John the Baptist says, repent. Live out forgiveness. Friends, it is time to turn from our selfish desires, uh, to turn from the bitterness, from the lies that we tell ourselves, and to look, to focus ourselves not, up, not upon our own needs, desires, wants, but to focus upon the King to receive the forgiveness that he offers. And as we rest upon his work, as we entrust ourselves to that kind of king, we know he is faithful to save. From every valley, from every mountain, from every rough place, if he has offered up so much himself to save us, how much more will he fulfill those expectations in our lives to be good to us, to be true, to be perfect? We are so thankful for that kind of God, are we not? Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful uh, that we have a king, not a king who has come on Christmas in judgment but who has come bearing salvation, who has come thwarting expectations, uh, changing our hearts and our lives, bringing to us salvation, bringing to us peace on earth, bringing to us goodwill out of your deep love and grace. 
Help us as we look forward towards this next year to rest in that, to set our expectations not upon our own ambitions, but on the ambitions of the King, uh, to see your name praised, to make your gospel known, for us to reflect and rest upon not what we can do for ourselves, not what we hope for ourselves, but what you have done for us. Help us to remember the resurrection, that after Jesus dies, he is resurrected and now seated at the right hand of the throne in power, and that one day he is coming back. And in that day, he will restore all things and bring us to himself, fulfilling all our hopes and desires. Help us to set our expectations that way, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.